All right, Rich, thank you very much for um, coming on to the podcast to have a chat about all the nutrition topics today that I'm not anywhere near knowledgeable enough to, to be chatting about by myself. Um, I know you well from, I was thinking a while ago about uh, actually where I met you first and it was probably doing jujitsu and yeah. uh, East Coast jujitsu back in like 2011 or something like that. Yeah, late 11, early 12, I'd say, was it? Yeah, M- minus the the beard back then, and <laughs> oh man, yeah, I've lost it off my head and I've grown it on my chin. So yeah, but yeah. So I think that was yeah that was, that was the earliest I can remember meeting you, and then I suppose we've probably seen each other at more metal gigs than anything fitness <laughs> yeah. related since then. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, I think I said that to you today, didn't I? It was like, it'd be good to have a conversation where we're not actually like in the pit and we're like, do you like this song? <laughs> <laughs> do you see that new album? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's good to diversify the, the conversation sometimes. Yeah, um, for sure. So look, I know you well, but for the sake of people who are listening, um, and of course, I, like one thing I always try to uh, preach to people who listen to the, the podcast is before they take in any content, especially about topics like nutrition you should always like check people's credentials and stuff like that so um maybe just if you wouldn't mind giving a bit of a background about you know who you are your education um maybe like your work experience and what you're doing now yeah sure yeah first of all thanks for having me on it's a cool opportunity so i always love getting an opportunity to chat nutrition and strength training so um thanks for that um i suppose if we start with my background um well, I suppose I'm a sports performance nutritionist, I guess. And at the same time, I'm currently an assistant lecturer in Technological University Dublin based out in the Tala campus. Um, yeah. My background is, I suppose, education-wise is in, in sports science and health. I, I did my undergrad in sports science and in health. Um, and then after that, I went on and I moved to Liverpool where I did a master's in sport nutrition in John Moore's University. Um, so I suppose alongside that, I was always kind of obviously interested in sport and I'd, I'd played soccer for a lot of years and as you said I took up jiu-jitsu and then I got into yeah. kind of Olympic weightlifting and kind of just more general strength training um and I kind of that's what led me down to wanting to study sports science uh could I apply kind of training to improve my performance and then I realized that there was this whole world of coaching available to me so I, I was lucky enough to get to kind of some shadowing opportunities with like local GAA teams kind of doing strength sessions and circuits and Kind of other lecturers were wondering if I'd help out with um, kind of like more nutrition based stuff. We had a biochemistry lecturer who was a nutritionist with an intercounty team. He asked me to come along and help out. Yeah, uh, I ended up getting an internship as like an SNC coach with a hurling team that was local enough. So I was getting kind of hands on applied practice, which was awesome. Yeah, but as well as what kind of led me more towards nutrition was that like, yeah, and I'm sure everyone that kind of trains knows themselves that like you can put an X amount of hours in the gym, on the track, on the pitch, etc. And you might not be seeing the adaptations or the results that you want to see. Mm. And there's people up and down the country in gyms and they're on treadmills or they're lifting weights, et cetera. And they're just a bit like things aren't really clicking or they're not going the way I want them to. And you kind of realize there's this massive piece of the puzzle that yep. everyone kind of understands the importance of, but but still I think overlooks a lot or doesn't fully understand. Yeah. Um, so I started to really get interested in okay, we can do all this training, but if we're not supporting our training by the right recovery, aka fueling, refueling, uh, providing enough macronutrients, micronutrients, etc., are we actually maximizing our, our, 
our kind of yeah. efforts. So I was more inclined to um, go the nutrition route, which is why I selected to do my master's in, in sport nutrition. So while I was over there in the UK, I got a placement. I was with London Wasps. Um, right. Well, they, they just moved to Coventry at the time, so they were just Wasps. So I was the academy performance nutritionist there for that season. Um, and that was kind of like my first intro into pro sport um, and the English Premiership Academy system in rugby. Finished my master's, came back here, did a bit of research out in DCU. Um, that was only lasted about six months. And then I was lucky enough that um, one of my old lecturers contacted me saying they needed people to kind of help out on labs and stuff in, in the college. Went back in there and they're like, we actually have nutrition modules and physiology modules that we need help with as well. Would you do those? Took on a metabolism module, which I was like, okay, cool, do this. And then it's kind of um, grown into now I look after uh, principles of biochemistry, functional biochemistry for sport and exercise, human nutrition, uh, sport and exercise nutrition and applied sport nutrition. So I kind of have the whole stream from year two all the way up to year four for biochemistry all the way up to kind of metabolism and nutrition nice and um, and then that kind of obviously developed over the last couple of years and then i took on a role with monster rugby in the end of 2017 so i was the academy performance nutritionist at monster rugby for three years i finished up there last november when i decided to move back to, to dublin i was commuting between dublin and limerick a few times a week so i think three years of that i kind of was like okay i need to kind of make a decision where, where i'm going here and um just the way things were, I was like, I think I need to make a decision. So I decided that um, I'd leave Monster Rugby and I'm kind of here now and I've just kind of been working on lectures, trying to teach in the new online platform that everyone's kind of still getting used to. Um, yeah. And then just working one-to-one -one with kind of some some private clients as well, mostly in the kind of sports and performance realm. Awesome. Um, so <laughs> I think anybody listening can uh, probably understand then why you might find it frustrating if... Uh, Somebody does a, a two-week PT course and then starts calling themselves a fat loss specialist. <laughs> yeah, I can. I, I do. Um, I was talking to a colleague recently enough and we were kind of in in this idea of like um, the Irish Nutrition and Dietetics Institute, the INDI, have a newly formed sport and exercise nutrition interest group, the SENG. Okay. And one of the things that they're kind of talking about at the moment is this idea of like there's people out there that are marketing themselves really well but may not Absolutely. have the knowledge that some of the sport and exercise nutritionists or dietitians that the INDI have, yeah. um, they might not have that same level of knowledge, but the people in the INDI or may not have the marketing skills. So we're not reaching the right people. Yeah. So there's this kind of in, internal conversation about kind of how do you reach the right people and how do you get onto the same platform as those people to make your yourself known in mm. terms of what you have to offer from an information standpoint and also kind of, you know, help improve the industry in terms of, there is a lot of um, nonsense out there. Some of it, I think, is genuine misunderstanding and some of it is yeah. pushing something with a product in mind or an agenda, possibly. So, mm, Yeah. I sometimes wonder if, you know, um, if you can ever really get on, on the same level of marketing effectiveness as some of those people because, at, like, at a certain level, they're telling people what they want to hear and it's hard to make as you know, like long-term consistent hard work sound as good as take this uh, skinny coffee or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, That's it's, it's one of the, yeah. To go back. There's nothing sexy about it. It, it is, like you said, it's. 
yeah just to quickly to go back to um to something you kind of touched on there about um what what got you into nutrition you know i think you're dead right about um everybody kind of knows that nutrition is important but i sometimes think that they don't really fully grasp how important it is and i've noticed this from from working in gyms or even just being in gyms through the years and seeing people who actually are working very hard and might be going into train you know four maybe even five days a week and you'll see them a year later and they're still looking the exact same doing the exact same things and with people that i've coached i've noticed that that tends to be the major missing link that people have because on the flip side of that i've seen people go in two or three days a week do some really on the surface level stupid looking stuff but they train kind of hard and then put loads of effort into their recovery and nutrition and they get results. Um, so to me, like that, that really proved to me just how important nutrition was and uh, improving my nutrition about two or three years ago helped me break through a big plateau that I'd made in my training. So one of the first things I wanted to, to get into with you was so the main kind of audience that I speak to on this podcast would be people who are maybe just starting to get into to lifting um, or might have been doing it for a little while and kind of are beginning to discover this world of evidence-based information. What would be kind of the main things that you would try to get somebody to focus on nutrition-wise if they're just getting into starting strength training? As in five by five, <laughs> starting strength, <laughs> microtomies, left, right, and center. I love it. I know um, you're going to go straight to gallon of milk a day. And yeah. That that's that works every time, but maybe we could go a little bit deeper. <laughs> Do your flies and drink your milk. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Um, I reluct. I, I used to be reluctant to start here, but it kind of makes the most sense to actually start with looking at kind of if the way I, I kind of frame things is this kind of hierarchy of importance of, of what what are the key things that are important and what magnitude they're going to have on yeah um, on the outcomes. So there's a really nice pyramid that was put together by like Eric Helms and Andy Morgan a couple of years ago that to kind yeah. of dictate this. And at the base of the pyramid is energy balance. So it kind of comes back to how many calories you're eating and how many calories you're burning off, which again, right. doesn't sell and is boring. But the reality is we all burn a certain amount of calories per day and we'll burn more if we're more active, less if we're less active. And that can be individualized based on your body size, your height, your weight, your, your lean mass, even your fat mass and things like that. So, um, understanding getting some kind of understanding on, on how many calories you need is probably a good place to start and there's multiple ways of doing it you could obviously book a test and get tested in a in a lab if you really wanted to go that far but there's a number of different predictive equations that are out there what i would say with respect to those is that they're just estimates so you could get a calorie calculator and it, say for example tells you you need 2800 calories a day and then you kind of just use that as a guideline to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. So if you if it tells you to have 2,800 calories a day to gain weight and you don't gain any weight, well, then it's not enough calories for you to gain weight. You need to go up. If the goal is to lose weight and you're not losing weight, well, you need to adjust the calories down to yeah. you know lose the weight. So it, it's just a guide and you're kind of working within this, this kind of range of calories, I think, that you're trying to sit within. Um, and I suppose within that, it's important to note like what kind of is your goal so if you're just happy enough to maintain your weight 
you know, are you just going to like figure out how many calories you need to maintain weight? Yeah. Is your goal to build as much muscle as possible, whereby you might need a slight calorie surplus, meaning taking in more calories than you're, you're burning out off? Or is your goal to actually lose a bit of body fat while building muscle mass, which could look at, you know, taking some calories away. So you're in a calorie deficit. Yeah. So then you start to wonder like, well, how many calories do I add in? How many calories do I take away? Things like that. So getting some kind of understanding of that is probably the first place to start. Um, because what, what, I, what I think happens is people go away and they like kind of look at the best macronutrient split or how many grams of protein they need or how many carbs they need. Yeah. And they kind of overlook what that all has to fit within a confine of, of how much energy you're kind of meant to have or take in or on a, yeah. on a 24 hour period, I guess, or, or maybe a seven day period, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so that would probably be the first place I'd recommend. And, and when you think about, you know, making up your, your energy balance, where do your calories come from? Well, they're going to come from your macronutrients. So then you can start looking at, well, how much protein should I take in? How many carbs should I take in? How much fat do I need? Mm-hmm. And all those kind of things, I would say. Um, after that, then I would, I would, well, I suppose if you've got people that are really looking to maximize how much muscle they're growing, let's say they're a new trainee, you could be looking at saying, you know, estimating your calorie requirements and then adding maybe 10 to 20% on top of that to put them in a bit of a surplus. Yeah. Um, if they're a really new trainee, they can probably get away with a, with a more like a greater surplus. So you can get, you seem to get away with more calories if you're kind of novice and new to training. Okay. If you're more further down the line, you've been training a while, you seem to put on a bit more fat mass if you go too aggressive with your calorie surplus. So you're probably looking at yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we all have. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, you're just like, really? 400 extra calories is really? Oh. Like so, the, the leader um, of Muju isn't going pure anabolic? <laughs> yeah, but interesting, like calorie surplus, even without resistance training, is you know, what they say anabolic. You will store those excess nutrients, but yeah. making sure that you're doing some sort of you know, resistance training, if you want to call it that, or strength training or hypertrophy training, Yeah, and getting enough protein, you can bias that towards lean tissue or skeletal muscle mass yeah to a point there's um there's a couple of things i want to go go back to there um so uh i'm a big fan of uh, eric helms and i suppose one thing i'd remind people listening about and uh i assume you'd agree with this as well is that i think that one thing he always talks about is that you know you have the pyramid but in many ways you could put another base level underneath that whole pyramid which is your adherence to yep. any kind of nutritional plan that you're going to follow um, sustainability and adherence yeah 100 percent. yeah so i suppose people should be aware that um like th- there's lots of different diets that can work but there's no point in picking one that you're not going to stick to for at least a few months or, or whatever it's going to take for you to get to your goal uh would you agree with that yeah i would and um it's something i did a lot later or a lot more lately is I've actually taken the focus off the macronutrients and look more at actually coaching the individual in terms of how can I get them to stick to or develop habits that are in line with their goals and their values. Yeah. And as you said, like the key thing is it has to be sustainable. So if you find uh, a diet that you just can't stick to, like all diets, you know, quote unquote diet, let's whatever you want to call it, like they're going to work in some capacity, but they'll Mm. only work for as long as you can stick to it. So like you said, if you're picking something that's too hard to stick to um, or, you know, you see these random videos like why diets fail or why this diet doesn't work. You're like, well, yeah. if you don't stick to things, they can't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, your sustainability and your adherence, there's a lot of research going on into actually how we can make athletes kind of set athletes up better for success. Mm. Um, because I, I was of the old school of thought that like I sit with an athlete, I work out their calories, I work out their macronutrients, we create their meal plan and we hand it to them. And, and that's, that's the job done. Yeah. But the reality is like that, that meal plan gets, if it even gets opened off WhatsApp or, or if you picked it in hand or something, <laughs> gets stuffed into the gear bag and it doesn't get looked at. Yeah, so it yeah. takes and and it does take a bit of time to put these things together and you're kind of looking at like well, what are the things that they're already doing at the moment and can i kind of tweak them somewhat can i build on them a little bit and make them a bit more conducive to what we're trying to achieve yeah um and i think one of the biggest things is is people might hear the word diet and they all, all of a sudden they think restriction and that's not what we're about here it's like no it's 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 not restriction it's kind of optimization of, of what we can you know, if you're doing yeah. something that you don't think you should be doing, can we improve upon that thing? Mm. And that might mean replacing a food as opposed to taking food completely away. Um, some of the stuff around like rates of fat loss and fat loss diets where people feel like they kind of have to turn into a bit of a rabbit and eat nothing where it's like, I'm actually going the opposite way. Is we're like keeping, keeping kind of food volume, the amount of food on a plate the same by changing the composition of the plate is actually one of the things that can be conducive towards success on a fat loss diet. So things like that, if that helps them stick to the diet longer term and they can lose more fat, then that's a good approach. Like, Yeah. Um, so the, the next thing that I typically get asked about by people, and I'm sure you get it all the time as soon as people find out that you're kind of into nutrition is supplements. And um, it's something that's overdone. Nobody even talked about macros, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Honestly, I'm not yeah. even going to, I'm not going to go into supplement. I try to kind of stay off it as much as I can because I don't even want to give people an excuse to start going into Holland and Barris and coming out with seven or eight things that they think are going to have any significant effect when they're only eating like, you know, 1,500 calories a day and 40 grams of protein or whatever. Um. I just want to ask about one specifically, which is creatine, because um, I'm always happy to kind of go into detail on that because I generally say to people that, you know, if strength training is their goal or it's it's an important part of their training and they've got a lot of the, the bases covered with their, their general nutrition and they wanted to spend money on a supplement, that would probably be the main one that I tend to point them towards. Obviously, there's whey protein, um, for me, I, I don't really even consider that to be a supplement in the sense that it's really just powdered food. Um, but what would be, in terms of creatine, would you be able to maybe give a quick breakdown for people listening um, about, you know, what is that? Because there's so much misinformation out there about, you know, what it is and how it works. And it's led some people to think that it's, basically like taking steroids or something like that yeah uh so it's it's, a, it's an amino acid and we actually make it ourselves and um, the body can make it so we have our own kind of storage kind of pool of creatine and we have it in our muscles um so why i would say it's important for for athletes and those involved in probably strength training um to be honest i think probably most people should be taking it to some degree it's got it seems to have so many benefits that are coming out at the moment but um if you think of yeah. terms of like the way the way we can kind of um as well as think about the energy pathways that we have in the body and we've got three that kind of always get referred to and the first one is 
what's known as the ATP phosphocreatine or the creatine phosphate system. So mm. we have a store of creatine, creatine in our in our in our muscles that when we break down ATP, which is what we use for muscular contraction, we can rebuild that ATP through phosphocreatine. Mm. So um, not to go do too deep into biochemistry, but but basically, if we can increase the amount of creatine we have within our muscles, we can speed up the rate of those reactions taking place. Meaning we can resynthesize ATP quicker. Meaning we can contract either harder or more frequently. So right. if that's pushing a barbell, or if that's sprinting, or that's jumping, we, we basically get better at doing that. So mm. it can improve your power output. So if you're in a power-based sport like Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or even strength training in general, um. I've even had like track athletes that have the rugby players take it. Like it's, it's going to benefit you in some degree. Yeah. So that'd be a reason to take it from a sports performance perspective. Um, and there's so much evidence out there now that supplementing with, you know, you can use a loading phase or you can do a kind of non-loading phase. You can talk, we can talk about that. Mm. Um, shows that there's improvements in like sprint speed, power output, weight lifted, one rep max, back squat, bench press, etc. So, the evidence that's out there suggests you, if you're involved in a, a high power output sport, a high force output sport, you should, probably should be taking creatine. Right. Um, in terms of like, is it a steroid? No. Um, <laughs> it's completely different from a chemical structure. So yeah. uh, it's it's not a steroid. I don't know if you want me to go into any detail on it, but it, it's not. It's di- completely different chemically. Yeah. And has a slightly different mechanism of action. But I think where people think it's like a steroid. Is that because you see similar improvements, not to the same magnitude or same degree, but you see increases in strength, you see increases in power output, yeah, and people it's, like it's improving it the same attributes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it works the exact same. It doesn't, but yeah, you see the same trends in results. Right. Um, so yeah, actually, if you wouldn't mind going into uh, the the loading phase versus non-loading phase that's another question that i get asked by people quite a bit yeah so the earliest studies would have looked at um i think one of the first papers actually did it in dogs and they gave them like a five or a seven day yeah five or a seven day loading and, and they showed that by supplementing with creatine you increase your intramuscular creatine pool so how much creatine you have within your muscles right um so they they did a similar approach in humans and they gave like a five or a seven day loading which was um it worked out to be equivalent to five grams of creatine mm. total, but it was, it was based off relative to body weight. Um, so then the research was like, okay, if you give a five day load of, sorry, it would have worked out to 20 grams total mm. per day four four bouts of five. Um, if you give 20 grams a day over five days, you saturate your intramuscular creatine pool. So mm. five days is enough to saturate the creatine pool. And then from there on, you need a maintenance dose, which is around five grams a day. Right. until cessation so that's that's kind of been the approach that's been adopted um and if if i suppose the other way to do it is to just take two or three grams a day consistently every day for for a month or whatever and you, you'll reach the same level of saturation saturation yeah the, the consideration i suppose for people if they're considering taking it is they need if they need to see performance benefits in a shorter time scale yeah so i think one of the papers looked at comparing um, three grams a day over 28 days compared to 20 grams a day over six days. And they both mm-hmm. achieved the same level of saturation, but the 28 day protocol took longer to achieve. Yeah. So if, if you're in a situation where you need to see performance benefits in, you know, the next month, you're probably better off to load it mm-hmm. 20 grams a day, 
four scoops of five grams a day for five days and then maintain with a scoop a day, which is usually around five grams a day. Um, there are other recommendations in terms of like relative to body weight where you go 0.3 grams per day for the loading phase and 0.03 grams per day for the maintenance phase or just yeah. 0.03 grams per kilogram of body weight, sorry, um, for the duration. So um, one of the other kind of, it's a side effect and depending on how you see it, it can be a benefit um, mm. is you can see an increase in body mass when you take it because there can be this kind of idea of, of water retention. Yeah. So if you're worried about retaining water, I'd err on the side of longer loading phase. No, right, sorry, yeah. no loading phase, longer supplementation. Mm -hmm. If you don't really care about your body weight, then crack on, load up. Yeah. Um, maybe another thing that um, people should be conscious of as well is that, thankfully, it's never happened to me with creatine before, but I know that some people can experience GI distress um yeah. some digestive issues so i'm assuming that if you take that more aggressive uh first approach you're going to be more likely to encounter that potentially and i think i think a lot of that comes from people that try and like if they split 20 grams into say two 10 gram doses mm -hmm. that seems to be more likely to, to manifest in digestive issues so if you keep the, the individual dosing less than say 10 grams i'd say keep it closer to five grams i think you're less likely to see those digestive issues um right. You mightn't be completely removed of them, but it's less likely. Um, and obviously, you know, like with any supplements that you take, uh, there's going to be people who respond more favorably than others. So I guess if we were taking like a practical example, maybe some people would go from being able to do a weight for, I don't know, five reps and then be able to get eight reps with it. And some people might only get an increase of one rep that's just a very crude, like practical example to, to make it simple for people. Do you think that's down more to like how much creatine they naturally store within their body? So in other words, if you, if you, if you don't already have um, similar creatine stores to what you have when you saturate it then with supplementation, um, then you get a bigger performance effect. So if someone that starts from a lower baseline and saturates up, yeah. whereas someone has a higher baseline reaches saturation. Think, exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you think that would explain the difference in responses to it? It could potentially, yeah. yeah I don't I'm know not, enough I'm about that. I'm not familiar on, on research on that specifically. I haven't looked into that specifically. Um, it could well be. Yeah. Um, that's one to make a note of, and, and I'll have to get into the, the papers again and have a look. Yeah, I might, might take a look myself as it sparks my curiosity now. Um. Okay, so that's creatine kind of covered. I'm assuming sort of that and whey protein would be kind of the main things that you would recommend for anybody who was going to use supplements for strength training. Anything else? Um, there's probably one more I, I would. It would probably depend on the type of training they're doing. But before, I probably have to say this as well, like supplements are great in that they offer a convenience. Um, yeah. But in the absence of all the things we're talking about, like energy balance, macronutrient intake, they're kind of like, they're like the cherry on top of a cake. And if you're mm -hmm. not even, if you haven't even baked your cake, that's just a mess and no one wants to eat that. So yeah. Um, the other thing I have to be mindful of, if, if you're an athlete that's in a tested pool, it's really important that you get your supplements from a batch tested sure. um, place. Uh, and the way to do that is just check if there's an informed sport logo on it. Because, you know, I think somewhere in the region of 40, maybe 50% of, of supplements that have been tested have found to have contaminants in them. Right. 
So you could potentially have a, an adverse analytical finding on a test in a competition if you've taken a supplement that hasn't been tested and cleared of contaminants. Right. So another issue that I face as a, as a nutritionist is to make sure that any supplements we recommend have to have a, um, a rational use, meaning that one, is it available in food? If it is, then kind of give the food first. Um, if it's not really available in the food, is there justification for providing it? So like, are they at risk of deficiency? Do we need to bring them up to say like a, a baseline level? Mm. And then is there a, a batch tested version or a batch tested product of that available? Because if we can't get it where it's been tested and, and shown that it's free from contaminants, then not only is the athlete at risk of, of failing a test or, or having an adverse analytical finding, like I'm liable or the nutritionist is also liable in that we probably didn't do our due diligence to check yeah. what they were putting in their body was you know, as clean as it could have been important point that I think gets overlooked. Um, so I would just Absolutely. be mindful of, of any, sort like, uh, and even still, like you, you mentioned hot, like no disrespect to Holland and Barrett. Um, they probably don't have a whole pile of batch tested products. So, or, know, or, mind- or things that are backed <laughs> by any kind of evidence whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Facts. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is like being batch tested, literally just means it's clear from contaminants it doesn't actually mean it works so there can be there can be supplement companies that have a supplement that has no real evidence behind it but they get it batch tested and they sell it based on this is batch tested so it's safe for athletes Mm. the other thing is that you might see when you log on to a website they're like oh we have an informed sport range that might just be like one or two products that they get batch tested um and not the entire range that they offer. So it's important to be mindful of, of, of that as well, even if you are logging on. But I do think more and more companies have these kind of elite portals and athlete portals that have batch tested only supplements. Um, so the ones I, I have and, and do recommend, like you said, whey protein. And the reason yeah. why I would classify whey protein as a, as a supplement is because it's processed and it's kind of, I know it is an extension of a food product, but again, yeah. it, it's, it's processed in a way that it could be in a lab where there could be contaminants. Yeah, fair we need to treat it that it could be contaminated and therefore we need to get a batch tested and that's for any supplement that comes in a tub um so creatine for strength athletes or power output or or field-based sports anyone that's involved kind of high power high force Mm -hmm. output one of the ones i've been interested in lately is beta alanine yes Um, yeah i've heard there's there's some some different research and different findings on that yeah so it, it seems to probably work in slightly longer um sets shall we say so if you're a powerlifter and you're doing kind of mostly sets of three five maybe not but if you're going more towards kind of that kind of 10 15 maybe even 20 reps like cardio type sets you might say um (laughs) Uh, um, endurance athletes (laughs) (laughs) yeah when you're starting to get that kind of that build-up of kind of what they call people typically call that build-up of lactic acid um there's actually a build-up of hydrogen ions which can Mm. potentially lower the the pH of the muscle and, and carnosine can be a hydrogen buffer to help pull hydrogen out of the muscle and, and reduce the or restore the pH so you can contractions can still take place. So what beta alanine is it's a it's a precursor amino acid to carnosine. Right. So it'll, it'll get converted to carnosine in the muscle and then help pull those hydrogen ions out. So if you're kind of doing sets that are taking kind of probably like 45 up to maybe you know 90 seconds i don't know if people are training that way but yeah i I find i find it works for kind of like those glycolytic athletes those type 2 athletes um we we did a kind of examination in 
in pre-season two years ago where we had the lads take beta aniline in a randomized we had a group that took it and a group that didn't basically and we saw that the right. lads that took it had greater one rep max bench greater chin up uh, had more really? high me- high okay. speed running meters in a this controlled. was after um a training period was it yeah it was in pre-season so i think it was about okay. eight weeks i can't remember right. the numbers off the top of my head but we saw you know positive so it kind of recommended its use for kind of for kind of that um so that'd be the one other one but the, the problem i see with beta aniline is it, it's kind of just thrown into these pre-workout supplement supplement or these pre-workout compounds um, right. and beta aniline is a little bit like creatine and that you need to supplement it over a prolonged period of time to kind of build up the carnosine mm. store in the muscle so okay. if you just throw a scoop of beta aniline into your pre-workout the reason why people think it works is one of the side effects is this paresthesia, this kind of tingling. Right. And you actually feel like you're getting a rash all over your hands and maybe all over your lips. Jesus. And people are like, I kind of feel that. So it's working and that yeah. could be the power of placebo. Mm. Whereas for it actually to have its effects, you need to supplement it for probably at least four weeks yeah. um, to build up your carnosine in your muscle for it actually have its its actual effects in, in helping buffer hydrogen ions essentially. So that would be one that I think is worthwhile but it's possibly misunderstood in how to take it and how to, yeah. to dose it and that's one that you do see um you can see gi distress if you if you load too much at once right and the other the main side effect is that kind of paresthesia that tingling feeling um so i think if you're to take your i think you're to take four grams a day but you're recommended to split that into four one gram doses yeah um, and ideally take it with food so you can lessen the effects of that kind of tingling feeling so it's it's more likely to help with um with sets where the limiting factor is not so much your ability to produce force but maybe more like the the buildup of metabolites and waste products in your muscle um, which yeah, i suppose so as a byproduct does affect your ability to produce force but it's that yeah, burning but, sensation you get towards a set of 15 yeah. or 20 exactly that's the one yeah Cool. I'll definitely look into that more. I wasn't aware there was uh, there was more uh, positive research coming through on that. Um, so it's really creatine, whey protein, and beta alanine. If that they're doing a certain type of training, that that would benefit potentially. Yeah, um, and then caffeine would be another main one. But yeah, I think most of us are taking coffee. that just uh, <laughs> as a byproduct of everyday life. <laughs> Yeah, but there is positive, like if you're looking at a kind of supplemental dose, it's between, I think, three and six milligrams per kilogram is the recommended dose. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, what, an 80 kilo athlete, that's 240 milligrams. That's probably about two coffees, is it? two strong coffees. Um, and does that change if if you're already taking that in every day anyway? Do, do you have to supplement beyond that to get a performance effect? It's interesting. There was data that came out or research that came out to see that there was kind of like a habituation effect, whereas like right. people that drink three or four cups of coffee a day don't seem to have a, an, a, an additive effect of supplementing like pre-match or pre-competition caffeine. But I think for the most part, that's kind of been dispelled a little bit and that it does really? still have an impact. Yeah, it's interesting because you hear about um, certain athletes, you know, saying that they're not going to drink any coffee within, you know, a few weeks of a competition or something like that. And then, yeah maybe take, um, you know, caffeine in pill form on the day or something. Yeah, well, you can resensitize a little bit. I think around four days would be enough. So if you're, say, let's say you're competing if, when competitions, if they are allowed, go ahead again. If you're competing on a Saturday, you might decide that you're going to taper your coffee and take down and, and kind of stop drinking coffee on the Monday or the Tuesday. So that yeah. when you do take the caffeine again on the Saturday, it, it could come in handy. Um, 
one of the couple of interesting things on caffeine actually is that we found that with the because the, the like the lads have such high body mass the recommended dose of three to six milligrams could end up with the player possibly taking in 550 milligrams of caffeine which in one go is a big hit mm. and we've actually seen that with the, some of the bigger lads they wouldn't even go near a super like what we call a high dose five milligrams per kilo because they're like no i'll i'll just explode yeah. <laughs> so we've actually seen a kind of a, a kind of a tapering off let's say of, of caffeine's effectiveness where kind of middle of the road doses for larger body mass athletes because of the actual absolute amount of caffeine could still be beneficial um, yeah. and another really interesting concept is this idea of a split dose of caffeine so taking some caffeine say before your competition and, and some caffeine the middle of the way through the competition maybe to kind of get a double hit right um, because of maybe caffeine's effects wear off after a couple of hours and things like that. So that'd be another area that, that'd be cool to research if there's actually a positive of kind of a double dose. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The, um, the different levels of sensitivity that people have. I know that I can't have more than about three coffees without getting that horrible jittery feeling. Um, my dad can drink a cappuccino in bed <laughs> like reading reading a book before he goes to sleep and he is absolutely fine um and it's interesting because there's there's a few people in his family like his his brothers that are the same caffeine would have to be taken in like very high dosages for them to feel any kind of sensation of you know alertness or yeah. um i'm the exact opposite it's that idea of the like you can have caffeine responders and caffeine non-responders and then within that you have a subset of people who are fast metabolizers who it affects really quickly and then it's kind of gone from their system and then you've got slow mm. metabolizers who it affects a lot more slowly so like there is a couple of bits of research going on to be like trying to personalize caffeine supplementation for athletes because the recommendation is to take whatever three to six milligrams per kilogram about you know 60 to 90 minutes out from mm. your your competitive bout but if you're someone who's a fast metabolizer and that that peak happens after say 40 minutes or 35 minutes like have you missed the peak so maybe yeah. you need to supplement closer to the event and if you're someone who doesn't metabolize it for 90 minutes or two hours then do you need to take it 90 minutes or two hours before the event and uh, it'd be very interesting to see what kind of comes out from that um just a, a funny aside there that uh some of the listeners might be interested in googling i don't know if you're aware of this story rich but i think it was about <sighs> I'm going to say it was probably like five years ago or so there was a major mess up in a oh, UK yeah. university. In Newcastle. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was, what was it exactly that happened there? They were doing caffeine research and massively increased the dosage they were meant to give people and hospitalized a few people. I, yeah. I, I think it was completely accidental. They just, um, just miscalculated something instead of giving three milligrams of, caffeine or something and ended up giving like 30 and it equated to giving someone close it was something to do with 30 sticks out in my mind but they basically gave them a super physiological dose of caffeine that yeah like you said they had to be hospitalized it was very unfortunate and thankfully no one came out of it too um badly hurt but it was just kind of a, a case i suppose for anyone that is doing research to kind of be mindful of your calculations and, and pay attention to your decimal points yeah or for some reason you're, you're taking powdered uh caffeine um okay so the the next thing i wanted to go on to uh with you was the the ketogenic diet um that's been kind of popular for a while now 
I think it's it's almost been taken taken over by uh, intermittent fasting is sort of quickly becoming the the new popular one. But I've had a few people ask about um, the effect of the ketogenic diet on you know lifting performance and results before. Um, some people say that you know you're you're not in a sport where you're doing like endurance efforts, so carbohydrates aren't that important, and so ketogenic diets you get the same results and some people say that you know you need carbohydrates and the effect that they have on on insulin for gaining muscle what what's your take on on that well i always try and think of it as like well what's gonna fuel the exercise that you're trying to do and if you think about lifting weights um and let's say we're doing like multi-set multi-rep protocols so maybe somewhere in kind of maybe some powerlifting, but probably more so towards like let's say traditional bodybuilding style training, like the fuel source you're going to use there is probably going to be muscle glycogen, which is our storage form of carbohydrate, which is how we store glucose molecules in our muscles and also in our liver. So on that basis, I'm led to believe that like, if you're looking to maximize your performance in a a very glycolytic activity, well, you should have some glycogen there and you get glycogen from carbohydrates. Mm. Um, And if you're trying to really maximize muscle growth, like maximize muscle hypertrophy, low carb diets might be suboptimal. Mm. Um, there is like, there are some papers out there and, and some early research that looked at like overweight women using keto diets um, compared to like a control group doing resistance training, the control group gained more lean mass than the keto mm. diet. But like a lot of the research on it seems to be that people that go on the ketogenic diet end up in a calorie deficit. Yeah. And we know that calorie deficits aren't optimal for gaining as much muscle as possible because they have, you know, influences on signaling pathways that influence hypertrophy. Right. So what seems to happen is people go on a ketogenic diet, they end up eating less calories, maybe eat enough protein, but probably not. Um, and they end up either maintain, like maintaining their current level of lean mass or at worst losing it. And I think some yes. of the reason for that could be depending on how you're measuring uh, lean mass because your glycogen content can potentially influence your lean mass score on a let's say for example a DEXA scan um, and the other thing to be mindful of is that glycogen itself like having an intramuscular pool of glycogen can influence the cell signaling pathways as well mm. um, so higher glycogen likely favors more kind of muscle building hypertrophic pathways compared to having lower glycogen levels um, but again, it comes back to that point we made earlier. Like if ketogenic diet is something you feel you can stick to when you're seeing results that you want to stick to, mm. who am I to kind of argue with that? One thing I would be mindful of is not to fall into the trap of it worked for me. Yeah. Therefore it works. And you're like, yeah, great. It worked for you. Happy days. But that doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for everyone else. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it was the best way you could have done it. Yeah. There yeah. may have been a more optimal way to do that. So I'd just be, be mindful of falling into that. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I just, I remember I, the first person I saw talking about it really was um, probably Mark Bell years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just a bit like, I don't see how you're involved in a, a kind of like a glycolytic based sport that you're kind of able to do that. But then when you think about it, like, yeah, you're right. You wouldn't use as much glycogen lifting weights as you do mm. endurance type sports. Um. So you're, you're likely not going to be limited by, you know, fully depleted muscle glycogen during, a, you know, training, like yeah. distance training, weight training, resistance training. Uh, 
and we can resynthesize all of our glycogen in 24 hour period so if you're taking a day between training or 24 hours between your training sessions it's likely you'll have muscle glycogen yeah. restored anyway so i don't think it'll be limiting i just i don't think it would be the most optimal to be honest yeah with you. yeah if your goal is to maximize what you're doing um yeah maybe if you wanted to try it for a period and uh kind of see what have effects on your appetite levels and your fat loss and things like that but again i think the keto diet even has fairly low protein so it may not even be op- optimal in maintaining skeletal muscle mass mm-hmm. if you are in a calorie deficit and things like that so there's a couple of things to weigh up i guess yeah and uh well mark bell's kind of he's gone to loads of different diets and i think he's actually more carnivore now than um than ketogenic um in terms of the carnivore diet, I, I suppose it's similar enough to the ketogenic diet. I would assume that you're potentially going to get put into to ketosis if all you're eating is meat all the time because there's not going to be much carbohydrates in a steak. Um, True. <laughs> what would be your take on that from a health perspective, given we've kind of already covered the ketogenic aspect of that? Um, i just be probably have a reservation over the quality of when I say the quality, sorry, like if you are going purely meat based and it seems to be that they're eating like red meat mostly, are they? Um, I mean, I, so I, that, just from what I've seen, I, I'm sure there's yeah. people who do it other ways, but I'd just be concerned with the level of saturated fat they're probably taking in and, and it's yeah. kind of a link there with like LDL cholesterol and things like that. So um, that'd be a worry. Uh, the benefit would be they're probably taking in more protein than they would have habitually. So yeah. let's say, for example, a, an, an average person uh, goes from eating how they currently eat and then they decide to do the carnivore diet. It's likely that they've ramped up their protein intake. And if they started lifting weights, well, they're going to see positive benefits from being kind of new to training yeah. and also increased protein intakes. And they've likely restricted other food groups mm. that are putting them over their calorie need, let's say. So they could see those benefits and think, oh, carnivore is the best thing ever. And, you know, it might not be. And then I suppose the thing is it, it's so early doors with this type of diet that we don't have any long-term data in terms of how lipid profiles are changing. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people kind of almost wear their kind of LDL score as a badge of honor being like, oh, my LDL is through the roof and I'm healthy. And you're like, okay, right now you are, but in 10 years, if you stick at that and you have atherosclerosis, maybe you're not. Yeah. Um, you know, just if you look at all the totality of the evidence, like the evidence we do have is there's a link between saturated fat, LDL mm-hmm. cholesterol and heart disease. Yeah. And there's also a link between the amount of fruit and vegetables and fiber you consume and, and improved um, mortality. So you're kind of taking two, the two things and ignoring the one that does help and yeah. maximizing the one that may not help. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It doesn't in my head, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those things where it's tricky because you know most of the nutrition research that we have is uh, is observational and that you're you're just looking at a big group of people and and what um, what behaviors tends to to link to certain health outcomes and most of the time when we have people taking in massive amounts of red meat or saturated fat they tend to be doing lots of other unhealthy things like smoking and this is kind of a new little subculture we have emerging now of people who actually exercise and are somewhat health conscious, but are also taking in massive amounts of saturated fat and red meat. So they really are kind of 
taking a gamble and that there's, there's just not good research on what effect that might have. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's probably too early to make any definitive, but you know, based on what we know to date, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I would I wouldn't take that gamble anyway. Um, no, I, and no. from a preference point of view, it's not the kind of diet that I would want to follow. No, me neither. I don't think so. Like carbs can be great. Carbs can be super tasty. <laughs> yeah, I th- I think it's like it kind of like this idea of the ketogenic diet and even maybe the carnivore diet and these type of diets. What they do is they eliminate some kind of food group, typically yeah. carbohydrates. And what that kind of does is it kind of reduces the amount of kind of convenience or maybe treat foods that people can have, which can aid in achieving a calorie deficit or a calorie balance, Yeah, which goes a long way in reducing adiposity or, or body fat levels. So yeah. that's probably how they exert their effects. And with the carnivore diet, like I said, people are probably taking in more protein than they would be habitually. So that's going to have positive effects in terms of muscle mass. Yeah. Um, last uh, last diet question I'll ask you about, because um, as I was alluding to, I think intermittent fasting has kind of become the new in vogue diet, at least from what I can tell from my Instagram feed. Um, I suppose intermittent fasting isn't really so much a decision to eat certain food groups as much as it is eliminating a certain portion of the day where you're able to eat um i suppose that could help certain people achieve a calorie deficit because it's just harder to cram as many calories into a day when you've got less time to to eat but from a performance perspective um i suppose centering around strength training what would be your perspective on that um yeah well i don't i don't think most strength sessions are going to be inherently limited by um how fueled up you are that like like you said you've got locally stored muscle glycogen which won't be maximally depleted in a training session so um again you could get through it would it be the most optimal i don't think so but the the more concerning thing i'd say is probably that like the most common example I think of is the 16-8 uh, intermittent fasting protocol where you, you have an eight-hour window where you're allowed to eat whatever you want, apparently, and um, 16 hours where you don't eat. And typically the recommendation would be to try and train early on or just before you're allowed to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's kind of evidence out there that like after a, a prolonged fast, your kind of protein balance, meaning you know, your body is in this kind of constant state of turnover where it's building proteins and also breaking down old proteins. So prolonged fasting can be put you in a state of kind of where protein breakdown exceeds protein synthesis. So you're in a negative net balance and actually resistance training um, can blunt protein synthesis during the training session, but can actually increase protein synthesis after the training session. However, what it also does is increases protein breakdown. So you still end up in a, in a negative net balance. Right. So one of the ways to offset that is by providing a source of amino acids, AKA protein, mm-hmm. and you can kind of restore that positive protein balance. So I don't necessarily think fasting, if you have to train, say early on in the morning, you'll get away with it. And your probably main thing would be make sure you're hydrated. But the key thing would be to probably have extra protein in the, the meal immediately after the training session. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can provide amino acids prior to the, the training session, and if you wanted to provide some carbohydrate as kind of like a, a fuel hit, 
that could maximize your efforts in the gym. Right. So again, it kind of comes back to like, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And are you trying to do it as often as possible? Um, I don't like it for athletes who are involved in strength training as part of like their general physical preparation because they have so much training to do is that their their total window for calories is probably limited by how much training they're actually doing. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to limit that window even further, especially if you've got someone who's, you know, training two or three times a day and trying to put on size and you're asking them to get in four, four and a half thousand calories. And they really only have three opportunities to do that if you restrict their eating window. So I, I don't really like it from that perspective. If you're kind of an, an interested trainee general population or you're thinking of progressing more towards um, competitive lifting, weightlifting, powerlifting, strength training, et cetera. And you kind of, you have a routine where you get up first thing you train and then you have to go to college or work or whatever it is. I, I think your best bet is just get into the gym, hydrate it and make sure you replace kind of with additional amino acids afterwards yeah uh, through like you know instead of having your 20 or 25 grams of protein maybe you want to go double that like 40 or 50 grams just to offset the the fact that you didn't have any amino acids in the, the pre-workout window and um, if you're training in the evening well you're probably already in your eating window anyway aren't you so yeah in general it's a good idea to be training around when you're going to be taking in food yeah for sure so in yeah. some sort of close proximity um so the next thing that i wanted to ask you about uh i uh, unfortunately watched a, a documentary on, on netflix um there about a week ago which is the the new biggest kind of expose of um this is specifically the fishing industry so it's a, a documentary called sea oh, so it wasn't game changers <laughs> It wasn't game changers. Um, it, it wasn't quite as dumb and uh, obviously biased <laughs> as game changers. <laughs> Having said that, that might only be because I don't actually have the, the requisite knowledge of all things marine biology to be able to to clearly pick out the, the BS. Um, so I'm only going to focus on some of the nutrition claims in the documentary, which admittedly were actually pretty brief um but also didn't provide any real evidence from what i could see uh, around them so the, the documentary is really focusing on uh, fish consumption or what effect that has on the environment but you know they go into this point about we're putting all of these uh plastics which break down into microplastics into the sea um and also metals and that fish are taking this in through things that they eat or, or the water or whatever. Um, and so then the uh, the assumption that's being made is that there are microplastics and uh, toxic heavy metals like mercury and fish. And if you eat fish, you're taking that in and that's going to have adverse effects on your health. Um, what would your take on that be? I haven't, see, I haven't seen the documentary, so I don't know what claims they're making. Um I don't know enough about kind of mercury levels and microplastics and things like that. I probably probably need to talk to maybe a food scientist or a environmental safety person mm. or a kind of an ecotoxicologist, I guess. Um, my very kind of top down, like bird's eye view level is that at the moment there isn't sufficient evidence to suggest any of those microplastics or heavy metals, things like that are impacting human health but again i'm not in that space so mm. i can't give an informed answer i'm afraid um 
it is an int- it's a very interesting topic. It's it's definitely one worth can kind of considering, especially for like, you know, if fish is a good source of of you know nutrition for humans, if mm. we are harming our own intakes, that could be potentially detrimental. But like, I, I don't know enough to to really comment to give that the kind of informed opinion. I'm afraid. Apologies. Well, no, that's a that's hundred percent fair and admirable. Um, I suppose. Th- there is some amount of, of research showing that uh, fish intake can be associated with good health. Um, so we do have research showing that it can be a positive anyway. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. It's a great source of obviously protein and omega-3 fatty acids, which are kind of essential in the diet. So um, I would be reluctant to completely cut out fish based off one documentary. Yeah. Um, if that's what they're kind of suggesting, I don't know. Um it's kind of like I mentioned the game changes earlier and anyone that might have like you you said you said and I probably said the same as like we, we are kind of in the health and fitness and nutrition sphere so we could kind of pick up on the claims they were making that was a bit like hang on what did you say nah yeah hang on and I probably have the same same feeling if I maybe was a marine biologist or an ecotoxicologist watching that on Netflix I'd probably I'd probably know that I hopefully would know that and I'd I just, I just don't think Netflix is your place to go for uh, no. educational content. Um, it's hard to make uh, nuance, and um, as you say, like, like maybe that is the honest answer. If we were to to ask someone who actually does have the the expertise in that area, would say, you know, we honestly don't know. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no evidence to suggest one way or the other, and that wouldn't sound great in a, a trailer for a Netflix documentary, a scientist sitting there and saying, well, we don't really know what effect fish has on our health. <laughs> well, we, that, that's kind of like, it kind of raises a bigger question of like the scientific method. And we're kind of seeing it more and more at the moment is like science is this ongoing process where you're kind of trialing things and seeing what works and you're, you're kind of basing your recommendations on the weight of the evidence, but you can, right. you can never really be hundred percent sure. Yeah there are certain things that have really strong links and there can be things that have causal links and there can just be things that have really random correlations. I suppose as humans, we like to see links and we like to kind of draw links and tell stories and weave things together. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're hundred percent certain in in what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I, this kind of idea that like, Oh, science doesn't work or science is broken. is kind of funny. You're like, well, science is just a method where you're a bit like, is that really the case? Can we dig mm. a little deeper into that? What evidence do we have that supports this claim? What evidence do we have that refutes that claim? Yeah. And in in any sphere, in any domain, if you'll find papers that'll kind of confirm what you believe, and you'll find papers that disagree with what you believe. Yeah. The important thing is to, to look at the weight of the evidence. You, you can always yeah. find a paper that supports your belief. Equally, you can always find a supporter a paper that, you know, goes against your beliefs. Yeah. But like if you know a group of scientists in the usa a group in europe a group in china a group wherever if they're all coming to a very similar conclusion on a topic that's probably not random and it's likely is there's something taking place there and if those people are probably agreeing on it it's likely that's true is what we think is happening yeah and if one random paper comes out that refutes that and you're like well 10 papers says this happens one paper says this happens you're probably going with the weight of the evidence and it's leaning more towards the 10 papers. Yeah. That'd be, that might be a nice way to think about it. I think anyway, I think, Um, I think there's a fundamental uh, misunderstanding 
like in society at large about like as you say what science is and, and how science works and i think the big differentiation is that you know the, the science isn't about finding the truth because i don't know if you can ever be 100 percent sure about anything especially in something as, as complex as the biological system as the human really body assuring, really really assuring isn't it <laughs> i know but like what i try to explain or the way that i try to explain what science really is to people is that it's more like kind of accumulating a, a list of things that definitely aren't true or that don't work and that the bigger that list gets the closer you can get to, to making an informed decision about what what's likely to be true um and I think what Netflix documentaries tend to use um, is uh, kind of like a rationalist perspective on, on, on information and coming to the truth. And actually, if anybody listening is interested in this, it might bore the head off them listening to it. But there was a great podcast done recently uh, by Iron Culture called Empiricism versus Rationalism. What do we really know? Um I just looked it up there because I'd forgotten the name, especially if you're a coach listening to this. I think that that's like a must listen because it kind of, it digs into like how it is that we actually decide whether or not we truly understand things. And empiricism is mostly data driven. Like you say, and you look at the, the weight of the evidence and how likely it is for something to be true based on how many studies have been done, the quality of those studies, and then coming to a decision based on that rationalism is more kind of you know if if a is b then this must mean c and in those netflix documentaries they take a fact about something that we're pretty sure about and then make an assumption based on that and then extrapolate it out to something else so mm. going back to the fish thing there's 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 plastics and heavy metals being leaked into the ocean we know that that's true. We know that fish maybe take those in to some degree and then it makes the jump all of a sudden to we're taking this in and it's hurting our health. Mm. And the more assumptions that you have to keep making, the more likely it is that you're going to be incorrect. And uh, my favorite example that I've heard made about this before is like you could make the argument that strength training makes you weaker using that argument because you could say we go into the gym, we lift a weight, you know, you do a one rep max. If you came back in a few hours you wouldn't be able to lift the same weight because you're fatigued. So if you were going to take the same approach they do in these documentaries, you could say strength training makes you weaker, which we know from experience and, and data and study and anybody who's just done it before that it doesn't. But um, that was a bit of a side tangent, but I think people would serve themselves better by actually kind of learning how to think critically than just fishing for the next uh, sort of um, saucy sounding documentary on Netflix. Pun intended, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, like, doesn't it's it's fascinating that like a, that the idea between like da- separating the data from what's noise, yeah, and like uh, being really able to kind of look at it, like you know, I don't know how like obviously scientists have to sit down and look at data, but like being able to see what's actually true data and is actually kind of have a link and not just kind of like things are going to happen anyway. There's ran- things that happen randomly and you need to kind of con- control for that as much as you can and being able to kind of weed that out and, and see what's, you know, beyond, um, kind of like how much confidence you can have in the results you saw were, were because of the intervention you made or because of what was taking place. Like that's kind of what you're trying to figure out, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so there's only just a, a couple more topics that um, I wanted to go through with you and then I'll let you go. Um, this is one that, that's interested me a lot. Um, and I know what kind of the, the, the take I got on it was when I was in college, but it might've changed since then. Um, with relation to hydration, um, so I suppose there's, there's two uh, divergent opinions on there about hydration and maybe not so much in, in terms of, you know, uh, sports performance where it's, it's really necessary, like anything that involves like an endurance component, but just for kind of general health. Um, some people say, you know, your body regulates your thirst really well and, and that's how you know when it's time to drink. And then there's other information you'll see from nutritionists saying you need to take in, you know, a certain amount of water every day, you know, three or four liters to stay hydrated. And, you know, they'll say that by the time that you're starting to feel thirsty, you're already X percent dehydrated. I know that when I was in college, uh, I had a very good nutrition lecturer who kind of would have been more the the former and and said the people tends to kind of underestimate how much water they actually take in because they don't account for things like tea and coffee and even milk would have a certain amount of water in it as well um and that a lot of what we've been fed is just marketing from companies that that benefit from telling people they're dehydrated um, big water <laughs> big, big water big, big big <laughs> um so yeah so what's your what's your take on that uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of like there is kind of evidence to suggest that like you get thirsty after you are uh, kind of one or two percent dehydrated or something like that. So um, you made a great point is that people tend to overlook that there's fluid or water in fluids like tea, coffee, milk, juice, uh, and also be mindful of that, like depending on the composition of your diet, you could be taking in fluid through your foods and that for sure would would kind of contribute to your fluid needs and I, I think maybe the better way to look at it is probably in fluid need per day as opposed to water need per day right. it's a subtle change but again like total fluids compared to total water whereas you might need to take in two and a half liters of water but that yeah. would be complemented by some teas and coffees and you know you're having fruits and vegetables which are quite water rich sources of food yeah whereas you could have someone who eats more um you know more heavily processed foods that typically have less water content and then you could recommend they need to have more water. Yeah. Um, so you, you could set it as, as kind of fluid intake needs. And then you could look at their, their dietary intake and say, well, you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. So your actual water intake doesn't need to be as high as four liters. Yeah. Um, things to be mindful of, I guess, is, is kind of how and when you're training and where you're training. And if there's like, if you're a heavy sweater, you'll obviously require a bit more fluids. Um, if you're training in hot or humid conditions, you require a bit more fluids. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably important to individualize it to a, to a, to a point in that, you know, what was the recommendation of like two liters or two point five liters a day? Like that's that's kind of too 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 much of a blanket statement because mm -hmm. am I going to recommend you know two liters of water for a fifty five kilo female powerlifter that I'm going to recommend to an eighty four kilo female powerlifter? on the basis i would say the 84 kilo powerlifter needs more because they're yeah. just a larger individual so individualize it to a point um you can do it off body weight or you can actually do it off basal metabolic rate body weight is probably the more common one where it's like for every kilo you weigh 30 to 40 mils 
and that'd be for water. But then first, like I have two coffees and I go, okay, well that's 500 mils. And I, you know, okay. So you need to actually bring with you, you know, a liter mm. and a half or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, be mindful of that. I think people tend to overlook that. Um, and actually one of the, the, the drinks you mentioned there, milk or semi-skim milk has actually been shown to hydrate slightly better than water and some sports drinks. And the benefit of that is that it contains, you know, calcium, protein, carbohydrates, small bit of fat as well. So it does contribute right. to your macronutrient intake as well. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, we talked at the, the start of the podcast about, uh, calories and, um, you know, how that influences whether you're, you're going to maintain weight, lose weight, gain weight. Um, maybe if somebody was more interested in trying to lose body weight, um, and they wanted to have some kind of a sense of what their body fat is at, and they could potentially then measure that at the end of a cut or something to see, um, how much they've lost, what would be in your mind, maybe the most accurate measures they could use for figuring out what their body fat is at? I'm going to assume it's not going to be the, uh, the, the scales you buy this, uh, you grab the handles and it claims to tell you your whatever 15% body faster. Well, it, I, the, one, the one thing I'd say is like, it, it depends on what you have available to you. And that could obviously be what's available within your budget. So I, I don't suppose everyone has a budget to go get a DEXA scan. Um, right. So you probably won't be using a DEXA scan. Which is, um, I think, over 100 euro or something. Yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, unless you know a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it'll come down to what you have available to you and, and kind of what, what, you know, cost to benefit ratio and, and what's it going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, the important thing, I suppose, to realize is that there's no kind of accepted standard or no kind of best measure for body fat percentage in, in right. athletes. So, and your ideal body composition really kind of depends on, on your sport, the discipline you're in, and most importantly, probably the individual who's, who's kind of having the assessment mm-hmm. done. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would recommend people pick their preferred method or the most accessible method to them. And if that is a scale they stand on, so be it. The one thing to be mindful is that all measures of body composition have some error associated with them. Yeah. Some have less error than others. Um, but again, usually the less error, the more expensive. Um, right. I'm, I'm a skin fold caliper person. I've been skin fold calipering for seven, eight years at this point. Um, I'm fairly confident that my error is, is quite low. So what you're how trying many, to how do, many I sites guess, would you tend to use? Uh, eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah. I follow the Isaac, um, international standard for the advancement of kin anthropometry isaac right, so i'm yeah. isaac level one qualified i've done that course probably three times at this stage um <laughs> and i actually teach that course on the nutrition module in, in the university so okay nice one that's good that's, so that's something i wish we would have had in, in my uh in my degree to come out with you know awesome hopefully i'm impacting the future so yeah um yeah, I suppose the key thing is that like with every test, if you take any test, there's going to be a, an error of, of measurement associated with it. So you might get a value, say, let's let's take skin folds. I, I do your skin folds and I come out with 60 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't usually recommend converting to body fat percentage from calipers. Discrepancies with equations and all kinds of things and populations. Mm-hmm. But I usually just report some of eight um, 
in total millimeters. So let's say 60 millimeters. Well, mm-hmm. if I if I take that and I understand that there's a range associated, a range of error associated with that, well, that could actually be between, you know, 63 millimeters and 57 millimeters. Mm-hmm. So you're within that range. So the next time if you came into me and you got your body fat tested and it was like, I've seen it happen with players that they come back in and they're 61 the next time. And they're like, I've gained fat. And you're like, no, you're still within the error of measurement. So you probably haven't changed. Right. They come back in and they say 67 and you're like, okay, you're, you're outside the error of measurement. So it's likely a true change in your body fat. Right. And equally then if they've lost, say they're down to 55 or 54 millimeters, it's well, you're outside the range. So that's likely a true change in your body fat. Yeah. And, and this can be applied to, like those those scales you mentioned, the Tanita scales, um, bioelectrical impedance analysis, DEXA scans, mm-hmm. um, a whole host of other ways of of assessing body composition and body fat. The problem is, I suppose, with the the Tanita scales and those bioelectrical impedance analysis is their their range or error is quite large. So right. if you had a test that has an error of measurement of ten percent, like that's a big shift either way. So you yeah. don't really know if you're actually outside of the range. Um of error to be a true change and they're also open to influence from things like hydration status because you know your lean tissue probably carries a lot more water than your your fat mass yeah so by increasing the amount of water or you know hydrating yourself you can make it look like you've got more lean mass than you might have and subsequently if someone comes in and they've trained and they haven't rehydrated it looks like they've lost lean mass and they're like i've been training for eight weeks i've been lifting four or five times a week and I've lost lean mass. You're like, you could be just dehydrated or your glycogen depleted or something like that. So the thing is pick the one that you can access that you're happy to do, understand Mm -hmm. its limitations and and, and try and get an idea of of its range of error. And when you do the test, make sure that you repeat the test in the same conditions each time. So yeah, if you do it fasted first thing in the morning on day one, if you come back in six or eight weeks for, for your follow-up test, do it first thing in the morning fasted probably on the same day to just kind of minimize all the biological variations and um yeah. technical error variations and measurement variations and things like that so that'd be the kind of major thing um and, and kind of keep an, an idea of ranges so like if, if you if you measure it say if, if you did a, one of those things and you're 18 percent body fat and you came back the next time and it said you're like 18.1 or 18.2 it's like you haven't gained two percent body fat you're still within the range of error yeah so if you do it you know a couple of weeks and it's down to 14 then you're like okay well you likely have lost body fat yeah and i i kind of removed the number being the thing of importance and more so the trend yeah so if it's if it moves down by two mils you know each test over a test that's moved down by 16 mils that's a good trend so it's like you yeah you're losing body fat if it's yes. trending up it's trending up you're gaining body fat you know you yeah. kind of i think you're kind of splitting hairs as to like well did i did i gain half a kilo or did I, like is it really gonna matter yeah i suppose at the end of the day so yeah i think people sometimes get caught up on how accurate it's going to be and f- for me the most important thing is that it's reliable and that it's going to actually be able to detect a change that's why I, I, for me with clients, I tend to just get them to use the scales because I know that if they're at least somewhat maintaining their strength in the gym and lifting regularly, taking in you know good protein and, and getting good nutrition and sleep and they're losing body weight and then they can compare that to, you know, maybe photos or something, it's going to be very unlikely that they're, they're losing 
any significant amount of muscle mass as long as they're doing a, set, a steady race. Yeah, and I suppose it depends on the goal of the sport. Like, obviously, if you're losing muscle mass at an accelerated rate and it's impacting your strength scores, that's a negative. But if you're maintaining your strength or and you're losing body mass and the goal is to weigh in, like the, the, the aim on, on competition day is to produce as much force and, and lift as much weight. So if you're still able to do that at a lower body mass, yeah. even if you have lost body skeletal muscle, like, is that the massive issue? Obviously, you mm. want to preserve as much skeletal muscle as you can, but... yeah. Um, there will be some of that loss through, you know, the degree and, and length of calorie deficit and things like that. Um, there was, what was I going to say there? I had something. I Sorry, it's gone. Don't worry about it. If it comes back to you, you can loop back around yeah. to us. Um, all right. The final thing I wanted to ask you about, um, we covered the main macronutrients that tend to get focused on are protein and carbohydrates one that tends to kind of then be a bit of an afterthought is uh fat um and there, there doesn't seem to be as as much of a standard in terms of recommendations for for how much fat you should be taking in and and what sort of types you should be taking in to maximize say like lifting performance um what do you think people should be focusing on there um I suppose the reason it mightn't get any direct attention is because it's likely not the thing that's fueling resistance training exercise performance. Yeah. So like we said earlier, it's probably mostly glycolysis, which is, which is carbohydrates. So from an athlete perspective, if we kind of go back to that pyramid, set your calories, figure out what they are, set your goals. If you're going up, maintaining or going down. And then your next best thing is to probably set your protein intake at an appropriate level, which for most lifters is going to be between what 1.6 and to 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein per day and then after that you're like well if you're a performance athlete carbohydrates will likely fuel your performance so set your carbohydrates and as mm. you said fat likely gets kind of the afterthought the remainder of calories yeah um in terms of general recommendations it's it's probably better to kind of keep it in the kind of 20 to 35 percent of calories range if you can i don't think going below 15 percent of calories is beneficial because it has knock-on effects on hormonal profiles and testosterone and things like that which yeah. could be negative for maintaining strength and, and recovering and things like that yeah um some of the some places i've seen they recommend one gram of fat per kilogram of body weight per day um and actually emma tester who did her phd on kind of immunity and ruby players some of the, her data would suggest higher fat intakes closer to kind of 1.3 or 1.5 grams per kilogram seem to have a, a positive effect on immunity but again, these are high body mass athletes and could just be taking in larger amount of calories overall. So um, it's kind of weigh that up, I guess. So mm. pro probably looking at one gram per kilogram body mass um, and what you probably might need to do then if you say you're, you're cutting weight, you could possibly get away with cutting that down closer to, you know, you know, not straight away, but kind of sequentially bring that down closer to say, five grams per kilogram sorry 0 0.5 so half half a gram per kilogram um and then you probably kind of stop it there because that's where you're getting into territory where you're going too low and you have those knock-on effects on health yeah. and then you'd start to maybe pull back from carbohydrates if you still needed to get into a calorie deficit and things like that so and in terms of fat source like i said earlier like the amount of saturated fat can have implications from health and cholesterol and ldl and things like that so you're probably looking to limit your saturated fat intake to around 10 percent 
right. um, of total calorie intake with the majority of your, your kind of fat intake coming from things like your monounsaturated fatty acids and, and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, so your omega-3 fatty acids. So like we said earlier, oily fish, uh, plant-based oils, avocados, nuts, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they seem to have a high degree of kind of kind of cell membrane plasticity or fluidity. So they make membranes kind of more fluid and things can pass through membranes better and cells function a bit better. So um, they're kind of the guidelines I've seen. So in a nutshell, from for strength athletes, figure out your calories, protein 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilos. Carbs probably around three grams per kilogram at a minimum. And then yeah. if you're a performance athlete that has additional training sessions to do, then build up towards five, six, seven, depending on what other sports and activities you're doing. And then probably keeping fat at around one gram per kilogram per day to make up hopefully the remainder of calories. Great. Okay. Very useful. Thanks for that. Um, okay. Well, look, we've been going a while. I won't keep you any longer. Um, I'm sure there's loads of, uh, useful and actionable information that people can use there to, uh, to up their nutrition game. Hopefully. Um, and I'd love to have you back on again at some point. Um, Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe next time some, uh, wacky nutrition documentary comes out so we can kind of pick it apart with your perspective. That'd be cool. <laughs> for although for the sake of humanity, I hope no more wacky nutrition documentaries come out. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I think it's inevitable with the amount of, uh, engagement that they get, but, uh, if anybody is interested in maybe following you on on social media um i know you have an instagram where you, you put up some useful recipes for uh people to follow along with um where could they follow you there yeah on instagram i'm at rich underscore kelly 33 okay um and on twitter i'm the same at rich underscore kelly 33 um so that's probably where i'm most i'm mostly active on instagram like you said i'll share recipe stories i'll try and share posts every now and again yeah i'm not as prolific as as other people but i try and put some content out there Um, i'm i'm in the process of building a website and, and my kind of company name is Greenline performance so if you see Greenline performance popping up that that'll be me mm-hmm. um where i'll be available where you can look on for coaching services and if you're an athlete or a strength athlete powerlifter team sport athlete whatever, if you want to do talks for your, your team, your work club, or we can do that. Uh, or if anyone just wants to DM me on Instagram and send me some memes. <laughs> it's the main thing we use it for anyway. Yeah. Subpar powerlifting memes and massonomics. Top quality, top quality. Quality content. <laughs> um, awesome. Grace. All right. Thanks for that, man. Um, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'll be in contact soon. Take it easy. Have a good one. Cheers.